Longbox Crusade presents monthly Monday movie muckabout because the podcasting world needs another movie review show. Like usual, I am Rick, also known as Not Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents, and I am chilling out in this lovely Longbox Crusade headquarters. Just chilling out in the attic, enjoying my time here, looking through their collections of movies, and um, you know what? I think I found a movie up here that is just perfect for a friend of mine to review and talk about, because I know they haven't seen it yet. You know, that's how we do things here. I find somebody who hasn't seen a movie, I give them the movie, we talk about it, make them watch it, and then we talk about it. You, you know what this is all about. But this time, I drug out here with me, all the way out to Longbox Tuesday headquarters, one of the guys from the worst comic podcast ever. You know him as Colin Stapleton. I know him as my friend and neighbor from across town. Colin Stapleton. How you doing, sir? I'm great. It's great to see you, Rick. Uh, we just got caught up. Uh, we got to see each other at one of our local comic shops around here, Comics Adventure. It's yes. great to see you. You were picking up some things. But uh, today, I'm super excited to talk to you about movies. I know. I am, too. I, I, you know, We're recording this now way back in February. It's going to come out sometime way in the future. But you know, during COVID times, we were practicing social distancing. I mean, the social distancing still got to my wallet. You asked me to come out to the store with you, and I ended up spending way more money at that comic book store than I wanted to. And I blame you. But yeah, as you should. I fell on the sword for you. I, I spent the money, and you didn't. So, Well, to be fair, you took away a buying opportunity from me. Yes. I still spent money. I socially distanced money from myself <laughs> and picked up my own books. But anyway, I'm super pumped to talk about movies with you. I think that's one of the things that uh, another one of these things that we definitely have in common, mm-hmm. uh, but we don't usually talk about movies. We're usually no. focused on our comics. So uh, I can't wait to have this conversation. One of our early guests on the show was your buddy, Jerry. Oh, and yeah. I know that at that time, he kind of mentioned you, know, you and and him and John, you guys get together and talk comics. And it, that reminded me a lot of me getting to go with my friends back in the day, and we would get together, watch and talk about movies. And that's what we did. Did you and your friends ever get together and do that same kind of thing, talk about movies, or was it just comics? No, for sure. So, uh, you know, we're kind of of a certain age. I'm just a scooch older than you. And uh, we still kind of lived in this world where we had bleeding edge technology like VCRs that you could rent for a Mm. weekend. And so um, movie going for us was a lot different when we were of the age where we would all hang out together. You literally had that blockbuster Friday night run Uh where you'd I mean, it was the hottest joint in town and everyone was there to pick out what their weekend entertainment options were going to be. If we had a sleepover, you know, and be like, okay, we're going to go rent a VCR and hit Blockbuster. And then it was, well, what movies are we going to pick? And, you know, everybody, because we were all ready sort of open to being nerds and things there was always those perennial hits like monty python or Uh mel brooks weird al yankovic with uhf um you know and so uh so we did enjoy those uh sorts of movie events we also one one moment that sticks out in my mind that was very movie focused was was that Jerry and our other co-host of the podcast John Holloway 
and his younger brother, Mike, uh, we went to a local junior college because they had had an all-day James Bond marathon. Nice. And that was in like 1986. Okay. So you were still kind of at night. Yeah. You still, still in the middle of Roger Moore era. Exactly. And so um, we, we saw, I believe it was eight James Bond movies that day. And, uh, and so we, we had a lot of fun and, um, and so that, that's kind of the experience that we had. It, it was as we got older. Yeah. I just feel like we were at that certain age where, yep. We did everything at home. We rented the video cassettes, uh, the VCRs and everything. And then probably the only other big movie thing that we would do is, and again, this is ages ago, uh, pre-internet, when movies like uh, Episode One from the Star mm-hmm. Wars franchise came out, we were still camping out at movie theaters for movie tickets. Did the same thing. Yeah, so we had the opportunity to have sort of this community where for two and a half days we were sleeping out in front of the movie theater and we had Star Wars Trivial Pursuit and a Star Wars Monopoly game. And we sat around and played those games and ate chips and slept, you know, out on lawn chairs. So that's kind of my movie thing. Between the reissue of the first, the, the, when they came back out with a special edition, and then when we saw episode one come out. So when we, those two events, I remember going and being in line at the theater, and I remember there was things like, they were showing space balls on the side of the theater, and, and they were coming out, and the theater came out with the big bags of popcorn, and we're giving popcorn to right. everybody waiting in line. Oh, th- those were the good old days, you know, before everything in the world changed, but... Right. Enough enough right. of this reminiscing. Enough of this reminiscing. I think we should get on to what we're talking about today. You mentioned a whole bunch of classics, a whole bunch of nerd classics, and I'll give you a little hint. Not going to give you a nerd classic this time. Are you ready to find out what I am going to give you, though? My body is ready. <laughs> All right. I am going to come to the recent time. We're talking 2019, and I would like you to see a more modern movie. Just All that right. one from... This continent, I'm talking about Parasite, the 2019 ah, South awesome. Korean black comedy thriller directed by Bong Joon-ho. And I am going to destroy names, and I apologize to everybody, including my wife, who is Korean. What, sir, do you know about Parasite? So I know nothing outside of the fact that I do. Well, <laughs> I guess I just contradicted myself. I know that it won Best Oscar. Yes. Um and so one of the things that I really, I felt like, so my wife has seen this movie. I didn't want to see this movie with her since she'd already seen it. Mm-hmm. Because I, my understanding is there's uh, just some things that need to be answered and unraveled as a part of the movie experience. But I loved that the director totally confronted American audience bias after you know it was announced that he had won the that the movie had won the Oscar, and he was like, "You need you have done yourself a disservice by not watching movies that have subtitles because yes. there are amazing you know performances and stories being made on film that you don't watch because it's not in English, mm-hmm. and you can still do this." And so for me, I just felt like it was this. Uh, you know, maybe not for most people, but for me, I was like, man, 
what an amazing thing to say to an audience. But you're basically like, if you don't like this, then don't watch it. But right. you also had this huge invitation of, I think there's something special for you if you'll just unwrap it. Right. I am absolutely pumped that you chose that movie. So you said that you haven't seen it because you saw it, your wife saw it, but why haven't you still gone out and seen it by yourself? Um, I don't know. To be quite honest, it's a time thing. Okay. Uh, there's so many good films. I, I believe if there are some much older classics that I've never seen, like Schindler's List or Shawshank mm-hmm. Redemption. And quite honestly, my wife openly mocks me around the house because I haven't seen these movies. And and so I feel like that if I jump the line and go see Parasite and I don't see some of these other movies, she's just going to double down on me. So well, uh, well, I'm so, glad that I chose this one then, because, you know, I've if nothing else, I'm on your wife's side. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. Uh, I'll be honest. I am super soft and uh, and very susceptible to weeping and crying. And I know that these movies have uplifting anti-hero components to them that are, you know, that make you feel good, but also make you acknowledge some of the ugliness in the world. And quite honestly, like for the last several years, uh, it has been difficult for me to hold enough emotional energy aside, (laughs) not dealing with the real world to then jump into something like that. So I think my, my uh, entertainment fair has been a little lighter, but I am absolutely stoked that you selected this for me and cannot wait to watch it. Well, no time like the present. I'm going to let you go so you can watch it. The rest of us are going to sit here, listen to the trailer from 2019's Parasite, and then we'll be back to get Colin's feelings on this film. See you on the other side. I'm deadly serious.
we are back. I hope you all had a chance to watch this excellent, excellent movie from 2019, Parasite. But if you haven't, or it's been a while, let me give you a quick synopsis of the film. This is the story of two families, the Kims and the Parks. The Kim family is poor and live in a semi-sub-basement that looks into a squalid alley. The family is very adept at finding deals, stealing anything they can, like Wi-Fi from the neighbors. They even take the free fumigating of the street into their home so they can kill all the bugs there and not have to pay for it. They take anything they possibly can. Barks are rich and live the perfect life. They live in an architect's house on a hill surrounded by trees and protected by walls. They have a housekeeper, a chauffeur, and tutor for their daughter. The wife idles the day away while her husband manages a company and their help take care of everything else. The Park's daughter's tutor is going to study abroad, so he offers his job to the Kim's son, who uses fake documents and his own charms to impress the wife. This allows the rest of the Kim family to slowly take over, with the daughter becoming a tutor for the young son of the Parks, the father of the Kim family taking the chauffeur job, and then his wife taking the housekeeper's role, all under assumed identities. As the Kim family indulges in the opportunities and lifestyle of the rich family they've invaded, other secrets reveal themselves when the former housekeeper returns to free her husband, who has been hiding in a secret sub-basement of the Parks' house. Inevitably, all the lies and deception crumble as a horrific attack occurs, instigated by the events of the Kim family. So, <laughs> Colin, tell me, what was your first impression of watching this film? Oh, uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, Rick. It, it My first impression was I thought it was going to be a comedy. <laughs> so I do pick up on context. Uh, I try to. I, I saw the the main title image or graphic with the dad with the line across his eyes, and um, and right, th that's not typically an image or imagery that we would uh, associate with comedy. Mm -hmm. But when I first looked up the movie, it was a result of my wife having seen it on a business trip in a small art house, and she came back and was like, "Oh my, this is before it had won its Oscar." And she's like, "You have got to see this movie; it's unbelievable." So when I looked it up on IMDb. Its first genre definition is comedy. And yeah, so, when I, so when I sat down, <laughs> uh, because Megan did a great job of being non-spoilery with me. And so when I sat down, the movie very much begins in this sort of haphazard, frantic situation where you find all of these individuals in the Park family, uh, excuse me, in the Kim family, doing kind of weird things and kind of manipulating systems and they're in a weird situation. And, but there was like this really fun banter between the family members. And so you, it, it seemed like you could sense in their surroundings that it wasn't, they weren't living high on the hog, but they seemed to have like a general good naturedness about them through their mm -hmm. communication with each other. And I thought, Oh, well, this is exactly kind of what I was expecting. And then 30 minutes into it, and I'm like, what, what, where have, what is happening? I've taken a turn into this corner and I don't know what's happening. And so it, it was so refreshing. I, I will say that uh, oftentimes I make room in my schedule mostly for superhero tights and fights sort of movies, not looking for cinema but enjoying two hours of banging action figures together. But I do like 
great cinema. And whenever something really amazing provides itself or presents itself, I love to, to pursue it and find out about it. And man, Parasite delivered. It is listed as a black comedy thriller. And, and if you are stuck on just the comedy aspect and we're missing that black adjective right. that goes with it, you are, you're going in for a very scary time yeah. because it, it is that black comedy genre where it's the theater of the absurd. It's the reality of the absurd. And what we're laughing at is not the joke slipping on a banana peel. What we are internally laughing at of, Oh, this is really close to real life and it's right. frighteningly so. So I think you touched on something very interesting and I want to dive right into that. On my rewatch, I noticed it as well. It is the story of these two families and you are completely right about the Kim family. Their interactions with each other is less what we consider a nuclear, traditional 50s nuclear family structure with like the mom and dad being respected and they're telling the kids what to do and the kids are trying their best. It is more of, these are... I, and I don't want to say this out loud, but I, I'll, I'll qualify yeah. it. They are partners in a crime. Not to say that they are out, out to just be absolute criminals, even though they are, but they're partners together in this play that's being acted around them of life. They know where they're at. And if they didn't have each other to laugh with and enjoy each other's company, they would be utterly miserable. Yeah. And the fact that they are happy that i don't think they're happy in their squalor but they're content enough that they are able to banter back and forth and enjoy each other's company they enjoy each other's company and it's very close and it's very fun and even when you think that they're about to hurt each other or they're about to do things that would get each other in danger they're always looking out for each other right always looking out for each other yeah Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely, you're exactly right. The level of respect to what an American audience accustomed to a nuclear family setting would expect. It's, it's, they're more like a gang and there's yeah. like a couple of seniors and then the two upstarts, but they all respect each other's part of the field and how good they are at it. And they're always working to try to find the new, the new angle. Yeah. So that, that was that I think. Your point to to your point about how they they constantly are looking out for each other or trying to find the complementary skill set that can lead them to the next opportunity. They're building on each other, comparing notes, things of that nature. It it felt very organic that way. They each take each other's leads. Yes. You have the son who comes up with the initial idea, but then you think, well, the daughter is the real brains because she has some skill and she can really think well on her feet. And then you get to where the father, who should be the the patriarch and the one who comes up with the ideas, he is willing to listen to his children and go in the direction. And then you have the wife, who you're think, almost thinking like, well, maybe the wife is is the one who is going to be, you know, she'll just follow along. She'll doodly do what everybody says, or she'll really buck up against the system. No, she is the solid one because yeah. she's got the housekeeper. She's got the most visible role at the end right. where she's the housekeeper. She's keeping the house clean. She's doing all this stuff. And she's the one who makes, who just adds to making it all work. So they're fascinating to watch and just in how they encircle each other and they play off each other and they build on the lies that they're all telling. Right. They're a great team. Yes. Yeah, for certain. Absolutely. I, we, we're going to go back and forth probably between them, but let's talk a little bit about the parks. What is your impression of them? And especially in comparison to the Kim family? Yeah. Great question. So I think what uh, director Ha is trying to do 
especially within the confines, right? I want to take one quick step back. One of the things that I love about film and the two hour ish time block is that directors like Bong Joon Ha don't try to change the genre or the experience. They try to maximize the boundaries that they're within. Like he could have made that this could have been a five hour movie. He made Mm -hmm. a little over a two hour movie and every piece of it was valuable and every shot was thought nothing was an accident. Nothing was just filler. Like I felt like everything had a place again, one of just one of the reasons why it won an Oscar. But that being said, when they present, the Park family, it is so different than it is from the Kim family. And it's the space that they live in is much wider, right? So the set I learned as I was doing a little bit of research that actually all of the sets for this movie were actually built from scratch, that this is not an actual home. And uh, and so that makes it even, to me, even more fascinating and incredible because the director, he knew in his mind, right, the shots he was looking for when he started building these sets. And so when you meet the Park family, everything, it, uh, unlike the Kim situation where it's constant noise, it's constant action, there's something going on around them, whether it's, as you mentioned in the uh, synopsis, the exterminator blowing right stuff into them and they're just like working through it or when the flooding happens which we'll talk about a little later and there's just sewage shooting through their living space right you get to the park family and everything is in order it's clean their living spaces are wide uh, brightly lit it's just there's such a, a contrast between the two environments and it sets the tone right away. You just feel like the Park family has less to contend with. They're really, because as you meet the mom, Mrs. Park, she is only really focused on helping her son through art therapy because he's still talking about this man that he saw in their house and it's really traumatized him or the language lessons that her daughter needs, right? They aren't talking about like, hey, let's leave the windows open so it fumigates the exterminator stuff and we don't have to pay for it ourselves, right? The the struggles are so significantly different levels that you you just have such a, it's a shock. And, And again, in the back of my head, when I see the Park family be introduced, I still haven't been shocked enough with the Kim situation to not think this isn't going to be a comedy because the contrast is so great because I feel like, oh, well, that's how they're setting up how the zaniness is going to unfold here Mm -hmm. in the second act. When I met the Parks, I, I thought that it was a great contrast and it really gave me a false sense of understanding of where we were really headed. As you're talking, I was thinking about the introduction of the families. The Kim family is introduced together. We see them in the same room together. We see them talking together. We see them mostly interacting with each other when they are together as a family unit. The only time we really see them apart is when they are interacting with the Kim family. When the Park family is introduced, we see them 
always separate. The only times that we really see them together, I think, maybe the one scene where they're in the car together, where they're coming back from the camping trip, but they're really not talking to each other. Right. We never see the Park family talking with each other. We see them paired off, but it doesn't get any deeper than that. Even when they have the big party, they're not really close together even then as well. So, we never get the sense that they are a family, except that we are told that they are, but we don't see them together as a family. We see them as these autonomous units that have other people that care for them. That's a great point. Yeah, because I think that there's really very few scenes where Mr. Park is in the same room with either of the kids. And I think that there's also a couple times, and to your point, like during the birthday party, where he's hiding behind the bush. Yeah. Right. And and again, a very visual separation. And the daughter's upstairs. Right. Exactly. Which, again, one of the things that I noted just about the cinematography and the filming, and to your point, is that there would be shots of a room where the Park family, one would come in. And as they were leaving, then another one would come in from a different side. Yeah. Right. So they shared a space, but they didn't share that space and time together. Yeah. I think that's a great observation. I I live in a very nice sized home. We we are fortunate enough to have a nice sized home. And there's three, only three of us that live here with, with our animals. Yeah. But there is a number of times where all of a sudden we find that we are tripping over each other (laughs) because we are all in the same 10 foot space and we're tripping over each other as we're trying to do things. And we're like, can you just go away? But so (laughs) happens that that's where we need to be at that point in time. You don't see that with this family. You see the. Kim's doing it all the time. Right. I mean, they are tripping over each other and they're jumping over each other and they they know how to navigate this small space together. And that serves them well later on when they find themselves trapped in the room as the as the Park family comes home. They they can operate very well in tight spaces close to each other because they're used to it. Right. Yeah, exactly. The scene where the majority of them are underneath the coffee table while the parks are on the couch was fascinating to me because it was almost as though the director was daring us, like, how ridiculous is that scene, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's pretty ridiculous. But then all of a sudden, just through very subtle lighting, through subtle time sequences, you bought it. You were like, oh, Mm -hmm. they could be in that really tight space together. Stay quiet while all that commotion is going on and then extricate themselves from it without alerting anybody. There were several times in the movie where I felt like I was being challenged with the absurdity, but then to your point earlier, there was such a darkness to it when you really sat down and you're like, what is really going on here? And then you kind of lost the the veneer of the absurdity And you kind of felt like, oh, there's something significantly more being presented here. And a lot of the absurdity is just kind of masking it. But yeah, I I agree with you. It was a good take on different families' ability to share space. The other piece of this, of course, is the disparity of class, which is really what this thing is about. It's this, the haves and the have-nots. And the views that the haves have over those who who are less fortunate. Things like the scene we were just talking about where they're hiding under there. What brings it outside of the absurd comedy level and brings it to the absurd drama is the scene starts off with them talking about the smell of Mr. Kim and how it reminds them of 
to something disgusting and something beneath them. And it, it leads into the sexual scene between Mr. and Mrs. Park. But it starts off that it, they're mocking the reason why they fired their chauffeur. And they're using it as a sexy interplay to get into the mood. But at the same time, they're also degrading the lower class. Oh, the lower class find it have sex in the back of our car because that's where they think that it's exciting. Oh, well, let's pretend like we are like them then. And let's get excited by what is beneath us. It's dangerous. It's dirty. And that does not titillate. It does not entice and doesn't, and it doesn't go into comedy aspect. You see the faces of the Kims and they are angry. What's your kind of take on some of those class scenes? Well, I mean, I think there's so much, of it throughout the entire movie, right? So we're constantly being asked to understand the class struggle with the visual interpretation that uh, Director Ha provides where the families are constantly climbing up and down stairs or the driveway to the park's house is a great incline. And when you're walking towards the house, it's it's uphill, right? So you get all these visual reminders that are subtle. Then you get slapped across the face when you see the Kims having to deal with the result of a day-long deluge of rain. And while the, the Park family is like, oh, this is such a wonderful cleansing rain. It's cleared some of the, the smog from the air and everything. And unfortunately, then for the Kim family who lives in the bottom of the valley or towards the lower part of the city, it has blown out the waste system piping and it is just running wastewater through their half basement apartment. And it was a constant reminder of the haves and have nots and literally how being at the top saves you from everything that runs downhill. Right. And it was so metaphorically powerful. And it was like, but I didn't feel insulted by it. Like, I felt like it was just a reinforcement that there were these definitive differences in the Kim and Park family from a socioeconomic perspective and the constant struggle of watching them try to get up the hill get up the stairs was not lost on me. And so when you were mentioning, and I thought, and this is where I was talking about earlier, where when the scene in the living room and the family's underneath the coffee table, hiding from Mr. And Mrs. Park as they're laying on the couch, denigrating their family, the smell of the drivers, right. And everything that's when it went dark. And then Mrs. Park and Mr. Park are starting to get frisky. And when you just mentioned just like how they were using that to kind of get into the mood, and and I, I was just like, whoa, that is super, super gross. And so then when it pans back down to the Kim family under the table, and it basically you can see Mr. Kim, the dad, just basically he's just he's I think that was at the at that moment when he finally just kind of like snapped. Because I felt like at that point, up to that point, he was just happy for these opportunities glad to be in the situation he was in was a little upset i think with a conversation around smell to begin with that he had with mr park but i think he just kind of thought he could work through it but then laying under that table and hearing the two of them talk about lower classes and making fun of the the caste system that they happen to be riding on top of 
man, I felt like at that point, Mr. Park was just like trying to keep it together and definitely a pivot point in the movie for me. The other thing with the ending and where we're going, where they were going with the sewage that they were dealing with and their house was destroyed and they had to live in a, spend the night in the gymnasium. And the next day, the Park family comes and says, we're going to have this giant birthday celebration. <laughs> there isn't any asking if it's okay, if they can help or if they can come and do their jobs. It's an assumed that they will. And the Kim family knows that they can't say, I'm sorry, we can't do this because all of our belongings have been washed away. Right. We need to deal with this. They can't say that. It's not polite to say that. They can't bring their problems there. So they have to just indulge while they're watching this excess occur. And they have nothing. They have less than nothing. The class conversation is throughout the film. And the director does an amazing job of giving you the pieces to put together and start to have the questions of how do these people who have the wealth, the people who don't have the wealth, is it wrong for them to sneak in and to start to slowly take over or be part of the lives of those with more? Is it so wrong what they're doing? All of that is in your mind. And then the movie takes the weirdest left turn in the world. (laughs) We have to talk about the former housekeeper and her husband. Right. For those of you that haven't seen this film, it is set up that the Park family is living in this architect's house. It was built by an architect. He lived in it for a while and he left. But the housekeeper has remained. And a series of events occurs, which cause the Kims to get rid of this housekeeper. But she comes back later on when she knows the Kims are out for a trip and she talks her way in the house so she can get into a secret sub-basement to get her husband, who has been living in this house as a refugee from taxes for years. And loan sharks. And loan sharks. Right. And which, which again, reinforced the whole caste system, the whole socioeconomic challenges. He's having to do this because taxes and loan sharks, they will kill him. So the housekeeper, because of this sub, this hidden sub-basement in the architect's house, that's where he's been living. So there is a level even below what we already thought was the bottom <laughs> rung of the class system. Yeah. It, and it is a sub-sub-basement that's hidden. And once again, going into staircase after staircase after staircase, yes, you think you're on the pinnacle, you're living this beautiful house, but then you see the utter squalor that this husband lives in and what he has to do to survive. And when the housekeeper was kicked out, a grill got stuck underneath the cabinet so he couldn't escape, and he's been slowly starving to death in the basement. Yeah, and you're just like, you just can't believe that there's another layer to this. I think that's the surprising part of it is, is that you think you have all, you've identified all the game pieces on the board and then wham, then there's a whole nother aspect to this. And you're like, wait a second. And then they do a great job of taking the housekeeper's husband and turning him a little bit into this anti-hero, but he's, he's really, I think that clearly being in a hole for four plus years where you're sending out Morse code messaging through a light box (laughs) that you have access to in the sub basement. But the thing that's so conflicting again, and the writing in this is so good. So you have this husband who's been in the basement for four years, hiding from tax collectors and loan sharks, and the housekeeper is taking care of him. And she ends up 
having to leave the house because the parks have decided to hire Mrs. Kim to replace her. And then he's locked in there. And it's one of those things where you're like, it's just so distressing. It's so distressing. And the thing that though then turned it for me and caused this conflict again was that the housekeeper's husband was very grateful to Mr. Park. Yes. Grateful for the fact that even though he lived in squalor in a sub-sub basement underneath this amazing house, it was only because of Mr. Park that he was still alive and that his wife was still alive and that they were you know, just living. And so he would always yell out, respect, respect. And one of the things, too, is initially think is the cool design of the house that when Mr. Park walks up the stairs, there are these three lights in the staircase coming up from the garage that go on only as he is walking by that part of the staircase where we thought, Hey, that's kind of a cool, interesting little dev- de- feature. No, that is a completely manual feature that is run by the husband who is pressing the buttons in time as he's hearing the footsteps above him. Yeah. And that is creepy. Yeah. <laughs> that is creepy. He is the ghost in the house and he is also giving respect to a man who doesn't even know he exists, which again is the oh, man. class thing. Right. He just assumes that the house does this. He doesn't realize it is being done by somebody down in the basement. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying. Like for this character who is seemingly so unimportant that you haven't even met him until a good portion of the movie has already gone through, you know, you've gone through a great portion of the movie, but then he becomes such a rich character in the story and becomes just by himself, such a metaphor for everything. I, I just love the way that you described that. Yeah, uh, it was, it, again, writing, not only was the visual aspect of this movie fantastic, but the writing in such a tight way to make every character's interaction, decision, motivation tie into something else that you could tangibly connect dots to. Fascinating. Great, great. Just mind-blowing. Let me ask you some interesting questions then. Do you think there is, and and this is going off of what you said before about being an anti-hero, do you think there is a villain in this piece? Boy, that's a great question because as I started to think about this just as a preparing for uh, a call or time together, I went back and thought about the title. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a parasitic invasion is where something gets a hold, uh, an invader gets a hold of a host and then uses that host's resources to keep itself alive. I felt like that it was almost as though both of these families could be defined as parasites, given the angle that you looked at it as. I, I just think that the Park family, they benefited from the life energy of people who were doing things below them, whether it's being street builders or people working in their you know, business or whatever. And they kind of take advantage of that and they, they maximize their life. And then, you know, the Kim family, I mean, maybe in a clearer sense, invades this Park family's home, their dominion. It allows them lots of opportunities that they didn't have in the past or to be adjacent to what they believe is a life that they want to live. And so I just felt like to revisit the title after kind of seeing how these two families really interacted. It's almost weird. I don't know if they interacted with each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? They did, but in in such separate little ways. The, the interesting thing about the idea of a parasite is that a parasite 
can be helpful to its host organ, not just destructive. True. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of cases where a parasite assists. It's very obscure. And and at the early points when there is a homogeny between the Parks and the Kims, everything's working fine. <laughs> right. Everything's working just fine. Are they lying? Yes. At the end of the day, do the Parks really care? Not really. Yeah. Because everything's working fine. They are happy that their son's getting the help he's getting. The daughter seems happy. Right. The wife is like has less things to worry about. The husband's got some stress because he can talk to Mr. Kim. But then you also have to ask, are the Kims okay? They're probably living better than they have lived. Are they happy? I think they are happier. And I, th- I think this gets into the question of, is there a villain in this piece? Yes, yep. you can look at it and say that the Kim families are liars, deceivers, and you know they get their comeuppance at the end when they, they have these judgments held <laughs> against them. Right. But what they also lost their daughter. Their daughter died in this attack. Right. Is the man, uh, uh, the husband of the old housekeeper, is he the villain of the piece? Because right. he has been living, hiding in here. He scared the son earlier on. He didn't mean to, but he scared the son. He is still siphoning off this family. Yeah. It's still illegal what he is doing. Is he the villain? Is the, is the old housekeeper the villain? Are the Kims the villain? Because they just look down on this. They look down on these other people. Yeah, it's a tough call. It's a great question, Rick. Yeah, the the villain aspect of it is so hard to define, which is the beauty of it, which is the open-endedness, which is what director Ha wants. Great movies leave you asking questions and thinking about things, and they don't necessarily just spoon-feed you every single answer. Is there a villain? Is it the society? Is it the economy? I, I think that... There are lots of things that we can look at for almost every one of these individuals, except I don't feel like Mrs. Park ever really engaged in anything. Well, I take that back now that I'm revisiting our conversation about them being on the couch. She was a little sassy there. She also really... I don't know if she was looking into the film and making judgments on it. I would say that she's probably not the best mother in the world. Yeah. Oh, she cares about her son and stuff. But if she really wants to figure out what's going on, she could be a lot more involved. Right. It seems like she lets the housekeeper, lets the tutor, lets a whole mess of other people deal with her son prior to her dealing with her son. I think the other aspect of this, too, is, is there really a hero? And I don't know if there really is a hero in this film, too. But this goes back to something you said at the very, very beginning. You and me both, we love our superheroes. That is how we know each other. We both do our comic book podcasts. We talk about comic books and the lovely black and white of the hero and the villains. This does not have a hero and a villain because these are real people. I hate to break it to you folks, (laughs) but in our world, there are no heroes and villains. You are the hero of your own story. Story, but let me tell you, you are not the hero of anybody else's story. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're the hero of your kid's story at the very early ages, <laughs> but that will go away in time. Yeah, for sure. So that's the other piece of this as well is these are real people and people are colored in shades of gray all the time. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, that's what obscured the black and whiteness of is there a villain or not, right? Because my personal feeling is right. You never, people don't become evil overnight. 
it's a combination of a thousand bad decisions. And then you're just so far down the line that you just can't go back maybe. And I feel like that for the, the Kim family, what they were doing was a, what we witnessed was their struggle. And within that context, I don't know if their struggle is evil. I don't feel like at any point did they lead with a, a moral high ground, what they did to get rid of the housekeeper what they did to get rid of the chauffeur. Those were not things that were without hurting someone else, but it was their struggle. Is that any different than the cutthroat corporate capitalist mindset that is in Western culture? If you can get ahead and you can get ahead by stepping on somebody else, go for it. That means you, that means that you want it more than the other person. No, great point. Right. So it's a, there is a, (laughs) that's a great observation, right? Just the narrative of the hustle versus Mm -hmm. capitalism and how, Hey, that's just business versus, Oh, well, these people are unscrupulous and have no moral center. Right. I love that. For sure. Oh, man. This film gets you into discussions and thoughts about all of these issues. Let's try to wrap this up a little bit. Let me ask you just a few more questions about the film itself. What was the scenes that really stood out to you the most in your mind that really captured you or just gave you those aha moments? One of the first ones that took my breath was actually towards the end of the movie. There was lots of amazing things. I'll I'll backtrack on this statement in a minute, but I, I will say that in film, long hallway shots are oftentimes associated with journeys. And if you're familiar with sometimes the way hallway shots are set up, oftentimes a director will have the the person in, in the center of that motion walking towards you coming towards the hall and they will lengthen the camera lens so it makes the journey look further. But the most interesting thing is, is that then in some cases they will flip the perspective where once the person has walked up to the edge of where the camera is, the camera then gets behind them. And then you see them walking down the the other hallway. And as the old housekeeper's husband emerged from the basement, after hitting Kiwu over the head with the rock, he's then walking to the kitchen to go get the knife. And then you see him walking towards the birthday party and you see everybody out there. And uh, and that then was the shift in perspective where he was just kind of doing his thing. And then all of a sudden, like it shifted. And now you were about to watch his purpose. And then he went out there and began to to rain havoc and and stab all those people. And to me, that was it was Hitchcockian in that the drama was set by the space, and then the actor just happened to fulfill what the intent was. So visually, I, I just thought that there were some just breathtaking shots, but that particular sequence, I think clearly still stuck out with me as kind of the the high watermark. Again, as as I mentioned earlier, just the writing, nothing was wasted. And that's one of the things that I most respected about this particular Oscar winner was that it filled every moment with purpose. 
and there wasn't anything, there was no shiny object. Hey, look over here because we've got a plot hole and we just need to cover that up real quick. Everything had a purpose and a point and gives me chills just thinking about how well it was executed. <laughs> well, speaking of that, then let's just dive into the rating of the film. How many full bags of popcorn would you give this Oscar winning performance? I've got a theory. I know what it is, but one to five, no halves is what are you going to drop on this? It's a five full bagger with extra butter and salt. <laughs> it is just amazing. Like I said, I love my superhero shows, but I love great cinema. It doesn't all have to be tights and fights for me. And I'm so glad that I picked this movie with you to take a look at because I feel like it's one that's going to stand the test of time. Yeah. I agree. And I'm right there with you with the five stars. There's a reason why this one Academy Award <laughs> I mean, the, right. th this is a perfect film. It is, it tells the story. It's gripping. It is, it's tough. It's not an easy film. It's not one of the ones that you're going to throw in and just watch for fun. This is one that you have to sit down and you have to bring your knife and fork with and you're going to make a meal out of it because there is a lot to discuss. There's a lot to think about. I told my wife that I was going to be rewatching this last night to prep up for this again. And she's like, nope, seen it once. Don't need to see it again. And <laughs> Coming from a Korean woman, that's saying something. But yeah. <laughs> I, I do know that going through the first time with my wife, I was able to get a little more insight onto a couple things just from her knowledge of Korean oh, culture. Yeah. Because that is another thing, too. This is not an American or Western film. This relies heavily on a few conceits that are within the Korean culture. You can pick up on them, but there's a couple of things that are probably hidden in a couple of layers down that are easily recognizable as shorthand to the Korean culture. Not unlike a lot of Western films use certain things, certain sayings, certain diegetic kind of elements that will stand in for lines of dialogue for Western civilization. Same thing here with the Korean film. But I think that it still is universal enough that you can understand the the struggle of class structure. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I felt like that one other thing that made this movie for me feel consequential is that when there was violence, that there were outcomes yes. of that violence. And because you had invested in these individual personas, characters, they felt like there was a loss. And again, from a pacing perspective, super hard to do. Super hard to, to make you invest in each of these individuals. And as that scene played out in the birthday party, that to me was like quality horror mm -hmm. in that you had no idea which direction the violence was going to take, but you had a justification if you looked around the room or around the yard for it happening to a lot of different people. And then you just had to be like, well, where's it headed? Where are we going? And very much in agreement with you. Fantastic movie. So, so glad that we had the time to sit down and talk through it because um, it's a it's a keeper. Anytime, my friend, I always enjoy what you and your fellow buddies over at WCPE do. Speaking of which, though, why don't you tell the good folks where people can hear you blabber on about other things that are more comic book related? Uh, I appreciate that, Rick. So, yes, yeah, so two junior high friends of mine, we've been friends now 40 years, and comics has been the glue that kept us together. 
And so we do a weekly podcast called The Worst Comic Podcast Ever. And it's really more like going to the barbershop than it is a uh, deep dive or critique or analysis of comics in the comic industry. We like to get together, share stories, talk about things we're reading, things we're watching. And at the end of the day, it's all about friendship. And comics has created a community and connections such as those between you and I, Rick, moving up uh, here to Portland, Oregon. Comics allowed me to make friendships with you and and uh, former podcast friend Nicholas Prom, and it's meant the world to me. And so, anyway, if you're interested in uh, just picking up three fifty plus year old men as new comic book friends via an audio podcast, check us out. Worst comic podcast ever. WCPever.com on the webs. Yeah, I would highly recommend it. It's on my rotation of a show that I listen to weekly. If nothing else, it's to inform me about some books that I should be looking at at my comic book shop. And if you are ever in Kansas, check out Clint's Comic Book Shop for all of your comic book needs. Appreciate that. Thank you, my man. I think I think I almost got the I almost got the ad copy right yeah, there from no, memory. You're doing so. great. <laughs> yeah, you're doing fantastic. Yeah, we really appreciate that uh, shout out. I also wanted to just, uh, throw in there and Lillian Francis too. I don't know why. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always great. Yeah, if you stop by, even if you're not enthralled with the content or the delivery of the podcast, stick around for the last two minutes of the outro. I was able to have uh, at the time my five-and-a-half-year-old do our outro for the podcast. She doesn't even remember doing it any longer, which saddens me, but it's always great to hear her voice. So stick around long enough for that. But (laughs) thanks for the shout-out, Rick. Not a problem. You always can find me over on Twitter at mmuckabout or on my other podcast, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which I host with my sub-basement dweller, Jeff. If you would like to be on the show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at Jeff and Rick present all one word at gmail.com. Big thank you to Longbox Crusade Network for letting me use this wonderful attic for their headquarters to broadcast the show. If you would like to help support them, please go on over to Longbox Crusade on Patreon and throw a buck their way. It's worth it. That's all the time we have this week. Please join us next month where we'll find another movie to talk about. Grab the popcorn. Pull up a seat. We'll be back with another episode. The music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at josephlin99. That's J-O-S-E-F-L-I-N-9-9.